Well, here we are, uh, another coming up on another part for our series is People of the Book, and that's uh, the point of the series is saying, hey, we are going to be people of the Bible. We are people of the book, and I know uh, I, it's been real encouraging to me, and I hope that you all recognize that this is really foundational. This stuff, what we've been talking about this fall and what we're going to keep talking about here for the next couple months is foundational to who we are as a church. It's foundational, I think, to who we are as Christians. And so I encourage you, not because it's me or, or Brad or anyone else, but I would encourage you if, you, if you aren't able to make it on a Sunday or you're in teaching in Sunday school or whatever, all, all of our teachings, we're putting them up on our website. They're on the podcast app. You can find them. I encourage you to dig into these things so that we're all operating from sort of that same place, from that same foundation um, together. So in this series, we've been looking at the Bible. We're looking at where we're going to be people of the book. Well, the book. Let's talk about the book and why is it important and why are we engaging in it? Why should we trust it? Why should we read it? Why should we obey it? And so forth. And so we started off our series and we've talked about why is the Bible unique? We looked at a number of reasons why the Bible is unique against all other books, all other things that are there present for us. And so we looked at that, and then we looked at, well, okay, so the Bible is unique. What makes it true? What makes it authentic? And we spent the last couple of weeks looking at those things. It was really great uh, for me to just sort of dig into all that stuff. And at the end of last week, we ended with this question. We said, okay, so if the Bible is unique and the Bible is true, that's great. What are the benefits? What are the benefits of reading the Bible? Or what will the Bible do for me? What will it do for me? This is not really a selfish question. It's an important question. What will it do for me? So today and next week, we're going to try to answer this why question. Why? Why should I read the Bible? Why should I read the Bible? So let's start today with something some of you really love. Statistics. <laughs> Let's start with some statistics. So I looked it up. There's a, a research group called the Barna Group, and they do a bunch of research on Christians and on Christianity and Bible and that sort of stuff. And so they do this sort of annual study, or I'm not sure how annually they do it, but they do this thing. They call it the State of the Bible. And I uh, went and I found the results from 2017. I don't think they've published the, the ones from last year, their statistics. But uh, I found this to be very interesting, right? Because when I, I step back and I go, okay, what's going on in America as far as the Bible? I think, man, I bet there's not very many people who really like the Bible. <laughs> right? If you listen to the news, you watch television, you do all these kind of things, you're out there in the culture, you're like, I bet people don't really like the Bible. But I was actually encouraged to find out here that... Um, you can see they, they sort of survey these adults. It says like, oh, you know, 22,000 adults surveyed. And they sort of broke them into these categories. And so you have the Bible engaged, who are people who think the Bible is generally true. And they spend time engaging with the Bible four or more times a week. Then you have the Bible-friendly people who kind of have the same view of the Bible. And they're engaging with the Bible less than four times a week. Then you have people who are neutral. And those neutral people are like, well, I'm not really sure about the Bible. But, I, you know, I really only engage with it once a month or less. And then there's the skeptics who are like, yeah, the Bible's just another book of teachings, and of course they don't engage with it at all. And so then you can see in red, there's sort of this hostile, which if you add all these up, it's actually this Bible hostile is just a subset. So it's really 
13%, that really goes into that 19, right? So it's like 6% of people are like, well, the Bible's just another book of teachings, I don't care. But 13% are like, not only is it just another book of teachings, I think it's intended to manipulate people. So they're the ones who are like, we don't like the Bible. So we look at that and I go, oh, that's pretty encouraging, right? 20% of the people read the Bible four or more times a week. I go, that's pretty encouraging. And really, uh, you know, what is that? 40 and 20, 60% of the people are reading the Bible every week. Well, that, that seems okay, right? So you look at the, you go, is this changing? Like, what's going on? They have a little graph, and they show that, oh, okay, since 2011, they've been tracking this, and things are really sort of stabilizing. It seems to be sort of flattening out. And I think what you can really tell from this is if you went up to five people on the street, you grabbed five people on the street, chances are really good. One of them would be, what they say, engaged, right? Oh, engaged, they're reading the Bible. One of those five people is reading the Bible four times or more a week. One of those... Uh, two of those people are friendly and they're like, oh, I read the Bible occasionally. One of those people is like, well, maybe once a month or once a year I read the Bible. And one of those would be like, I hate the Bible. Right? You go, okay. All right, so that's kind of where we're at as a country. And you think, well, okay, so what's going on? Do people like have the Bible? Do they what? And so they have this statistic. I think this one's really interesting. How many households in the United States own a Bible? 87%. Almost 9 out of 10 Americans own a Bible. I would guess everybody here owns a Bible. If you have a phone, you can have a Bible for free. But if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own one of these, you let me know afterwards and I'll give you one. So then you can own a Bible and we can make that number be 100% if we want, right? I think that's very interesting. 9 out of 10 Americans households have a Bible. They have access to a Bible in their own home. And you go, okay, well, do people, they own the Bible, some people engage or not, what do they think? Like, is there sort of this trend of, well, I have the Bible, but I'm not really interested in it? Well, there's this interesting statistics here. It says, okay, do you desire greater use of the Bible? Do you look at your own life and want to engage with the Bible more? And we look at every single one, you look at that green bar, oops, every single one, is going, yeah, we want to engage more. Some are like, no, I don't, I don't want to, right? And you'd say, okay, the Bible skeptics have the greatest amount of ones who are like, yeah, I don't want to. But even 22% of Bible skeptics who are like, that is a book intended to manipulate, are going, I want to read it more. That's interesting. And I think it's very interesting that uh, 40% of those who are engaged are like, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> That's enough. Right? So I look at this and I go, okay, what kind of conclusion can I make? I go, all right. I think you can draw a line and you go, all right, you're reading the Bible less than four times a week. You're kind of like, well... Yeah, I kind of want to get to it. I kind of have a time. I, I don't know. I go, all right, so you're Bible friendly. So Bible friendly, Bible nutri, Bible skeptic, that's 8 out of 10 Americans. I go, 8 out of 10 Americans are not really approaching the Bible in a real meaningful way of like, hey, this is life. And yet, they want to. There is this greater desire... To engage in the Bible, and yet I think 8 out of 10 Americans aren't reading the Bible. And so we would say, why? Why is that? Why is it? My guess is that they don't know what the benefits of the Bible are. They don't really understand those. 
So I got a couple of fun stories here. I looked up on the internet because the internet has all the information that we need, right? No, these are some good stories. I think they're verified. Uh, but I'm just going to read them to you. A couple stories. The first one is this. There was a man. Uh, he bought an old $4 painting at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania in 1989, and he was thinking the frame could be fixed and reused. But when he removed the canvas, he saw a folded paper stuffed in it. He opened the document and couldn't believe his eyes when he saw an original copy of the Declaration of Independence dated 1776. So the head of the book and manuscript department at Sotheby's announced the unique discovery a couple years later in 1991 and the lucky finder decided he wanted to be anonymous and later that year in 1991 that manuscript was auctioned for 2.42 million dollars if only the seller at that flea market knew the fortune the painting was hiding inside I bet he wouldn't have sold it at least not for four dollars right so this is interesting. Oh, we found this treasure. Another story. See this painting here. For many years, this simple $29 painting had been covering a hole in the wall at an Indiana home. One day, the owner of this house realized this work was valuable because his family played this board game called Masterpiece, which is about art. And in that, he discovered this was the third most valuable painting ever done by this artist named Martin Johnson Heaty, who I hadn't heard of, but he's apparently famous. And this is called Magnolias on Gold Velvet Cloth. In 1999, experts from the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston confirmed the origins of this painting and offered a good price to the owner because the painting was still in its original frame and was in perfect condition. The seller agreed to accept the $1.25 million offer for this painting. And the museum has had it on display since then. Isn't that fascinating? That's two stories of people who just thought they had ordinary things sitting in their hands, and it turned out to be this great treasure. And I would say the same thing is true for us as Americans. The Bible, if the Bible contains the words of God... If the Bible contains the words of God, it contains instructions for our lives, then when we hold this, we are holding the greatest treasure imaginable. Amen? Think of that. Nearly 9 out of 10 Americans have access to a Bible in their own home. That means nearly 90% of Americans in their own home, in their own possession, have a treasure greater than the original Declaration of Independence or a painting by a famous artist. And then the statistics show it that people want to use it more. And so why won't they? And so again, I go back to, well, maybe they don't know the benefits. So I thought, maybe we don't know the benefits. Maybe I don't know the benefits. So today and next week, we're going to look at some of those benefits of reading the Bible. So we'll start with the first one today, which is truth. First benefit of the Bible, one of the most important benefits of the Bible is truth. Jesus himself, he's praying to God in John chapter 17, verse 17. He says, God, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then he declares, your word is truth. Jesus is saying, the Bible, this is the truth. Do you grasp the blessing that comes from knowing the truth? Do you grasp it? 
You know, there are so many people, right, who struggle, struggle with understanding the truth, and maybe you're one of them. Sometimes I can be one of them. We're all sometimes people who struggle with understanding the truth, and Jesus encountered one of those people. It was the guy who was putting him on trial was going to decide his ultimate fate, Pilate. And Jesus said to him, Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate goes, what is truth? What is truth? We can all say that. Many of us have said that. We know people who say that. See, Pilate wasn't just some guy who didn't know anything. He was probably likely very educated. He probably spoke multiple languages. There's no way he could have gotten to the position he was in the Roman Empire without some high level of education. And I think just like Pilate and our culture, the issue is not about truth, is not an issue of understanding. It is an issue of understanding. It's not an issue of pursuit. Consider these things. Let's think about college attendance. I'd, I'd have you raise your hands, but I don't want to put anybody on the spot. I bet if I said, how many of you have a college degree, most people would raise their hands. If I said, how many of you have two college degrees, there would be quite a number of people here who would raise their hands. But I think if you went back 50 years, hmm, it probably wouldn't be the same. We wouldn't have the same percentages. College attendance is way up. It is way up in the United States. Think about the internet. The internet has opened the door to online learning. There's all kinds of opportunities that abound around us. It's interesting. I saw this statistic this week as I was looking. In the 1980s, it was reported. They thought, wow, this is amazing back in the 80s. They were like, wow, you realize 3,000 pages of information are printed every minute. What do you think it is today? With the internet? We actually don't know. They said, well, we can't really tell. There's no way for us to track it. The number is so large and it's happening so quickly. There's such an explosion of information. No one can accurately count the amount of information that is out there. So it's not a lack of information. And it's not a lack of motivation. People are going and trying to be educated and going to college and trying to find things. So what gives? What gives? Well, interestingly enough, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul addresses this very thing. In chapter 3, he says, In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, and he lists off a bunch of things that people will be, and then one of the things he says, people will be always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This describes us, doesn't it? And so I don't know if I understand end times prophecies or any of that kind of stuff, but I could look at this and say, well, in some way, shape, or form, we're living in the last days because this describes the world we live in. See, I feel so bombarded by all sorts of ridiculous information. Do you feel that way? I feel that way. I was trying to think of some examples this week. I thought, man, you know, we, we live in a world where people write books and they can't keep its and its distinct. Now, if you can't do that, I'm not criticizing you. I just say, you know, that's probably kind of a minor detail that would be fairly easy to just figure out before you write a book. People can't do that. We're surrounded by podcasts, right? People who say, I can talk and speak and pass information. And there's so many that you just scratch your head and you go, what? How are you an expert? I was thinking of one of some people who say, oh, I've got a podcast on parenting, but I know those people. And I go, I don't think you want to emulate their parenting, right? There's blogs 
upon blogs, upon blogs, upon blogs. And so many of them are just emotional manipulation parading as facts. Not all of them, but many of them are. We see statements in our culture like, the science is settled. I go, but the point of science is asking questions and continue to ask questions. So how can we say this is the knowledge of truth? It's not. It's no wonder with all these kind of things that we find all kinds of learning, but not much truth. So where do we get the truth? Where do we get the truth? I have good news. Jesus told us. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells us he is the truth. He is the truth. And we just saw in John chapter 17, he says, the Bible is my words. And so the Bible, we can look at the Bible as the truth about the truth. And what's the result? What's the result of knowing truth in John chapter 8? Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And then what? The truth will set you free. What's the result of knowing truth? Freedom. Freedom. When we know the truth, we have freedom. How do we know the truth? He tells us right there. Abide in his words. Abide in the words of God. If we abide in the truth, if we live in it, if we read the Bible and get the truth, we'll be free. It's amazing, right? I think, wow, what a discovery. It's like this guy. Eureka! picture cracks me up. They were like, okay, now I want you to fix your hair funny and we're going to take your picture looking in a microscope. (laughs) I love stock photos. They're hilarious. Anyway, you're like, fine, it sounds good. We can find the truth when we live and abide in Christ and we read his word. And we go, so what? What does the truth about the truth tell us? That's nice. It's the truth about the truth, but what does it tell us? Well, kind of some big deals. It tells us about life, death, and eternity. It tells us about human relationships, how we relate to each other. It tells us about how we should work, how we should engage in the working world. It tells us about our family and the home. It tells us about how to deal with the government and the authorities. It tells us about health and wellness. It tells us about how to think wisely. It tells us about how to make good decisions. And I could go on and on. The truth about the truth isn't just some abstract idea. It is practical and it applies to our lives in very pertinent ways, doesn't it? And so that's the first reason we could go on and on about the truth. The first benefit of why we study the Bible is that it gives us the truth. The second one I'm going to talk about today is happiness. Psalm 19, verse 89, David says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What are the precepts of the Lord? His word. They're written down in the Bible. So it's saying the words of the Bible are right, and they bring me happiness. Look, I think everyone wants to be happy. That's maybe the dumbest thing I've said today. (laughs) Everybody wants to be happy. I did a Google search just for fun, and I typed in the word happiness. 820 trillion results on happiness. And that was just in English, right? I put in, okay, let's narrow it down and put in the pursuit of happiness. There are over 63 million results. So I want you right now, raise your hand if, you, if happiness is one of your primary motivators in life. Raise your hand. 
okay? Right? And the rest of you are just trying to be modest because happiness is one of our primary motivators. And that's okay. I think it's this sort of puritanical idea to be like, oh, happiness is bad. We need to just deny oneself. Look, I think God created us with a desire for happiness. It's okay for us to say, yes, happiness is good. I want to go after it. We have to go after it in the right places, right? A common statement you've probably heard in conversations, I've heard it in a number of conversations, I've heard it in counseling with people and those sort of things is this. They say, well, I tried such and such, but that didn't make me happy. Oh, I engaged with this thing and I tried to do this other thing, but it didn't make me happy. And why is that? Why is it when we engage in something that doesn't make us happy? Well, I think in almost every instance, a lack of happiness is a spiritual problem, not a physical or an emotional problem. I believe unhappiness is a result of a spiritual issue. In regards to happiness, the Bible tells us a few things here. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. So when can I be happy? When can I be happy? The times when I'm listening to God. It also says, Jesus said this, he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So how do I get happiness? I get happiness from taking what I hear from God and putting it into practice. You go, okay, well, not all the words of God are easy to understand. Well, I love this in Revelation chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, talking about the book of Revelation. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. See, the Bible and Scripture is so awesome that I can find happiness even in the most difficult parts. I think that's pretty cool. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. It's saying, what is one of the main points of the Bible? To bring happiness into our lives. That's the point. That's why it's there. In the end, it's really simple. Do you want to know happiness? If you want to know happiness, you need to recognize that happiness is, at its root, a spiritual condition. We can understand that from the Bible. This is reason number two to study the Bible. The third reason is victory. Victory, victory. Anyone know that old song? Maybe we start singing, oh, victory in Jesus. No, I won't sing it. Can we sing that next week, Jerry? No, I'm just kidding, right? We all want victory, right? Who, sits, who here sits down with a board game and tries to lose? Uh, yeah, maybe. I No, you don't. You're not telling the truth. And if you are, that's boring. Right? We coach our kids in that. We sit down with a game and we're like, okay, no, you need to play the game right and you need to play as if you're going to win. Right? In professional sports, there's this stigma against what they call tanking. For those of you who don't understand, that's the idea of just trying to lose games so you can get better players in the draft the next year. Everyone's like, don't do that. That's terrible. One of my favorite movies is kind of a sports movie, Nacho Libre. (laughs) He's doing Lucha Libre, right? Which is kind of this, you know, fake wrestling. Did I call it fake? Yeah, right? And he keeps losing, and he's kind of the, they're kind of the, he and his partner, they're kind of the punching bag of the tournament. And what does he say? I don't want to get paid to lose. I want to win. 
We all want to win. My boys have been playing flag football, and it's, it's pretty low-key. You know, nothing rides on it. It's just fun. They're just trying to have the boys learn skills and play and get exercise. And yet, I go and I sit on the sideline. I, sit with, I was sitting there yesterday with a bunch of dads, and we're all like, Yeah! Come on! Oh, man, it's getting close. We're yelling at the ref, and it's flag football! But we want our kids to win! Right? I see Bentley over here. What's the problem with the Broncos this year? Are they winning? No, so that's the problem. We all understand. We're like, we want people to win. We want victory. Ultimately, every single person experiences exhilaration in victory and disappointment in losing, whether it's personally and something in your own life or vicariously through our local sports team. I guess unless you're a Patriots fan, you always win, right? I believe, I believe this is a universality of the human condition that was created in us by God. He created us to want victory. So where do we get victory? Where do we get it? Now, when it comes to sports and it comes to board games and it comes to some of those things, there's probably a little bit of skill, a little bit of luck, a little bit of circumstances and so forth. But what about when it comes to spiritual things? Remember, when it comes to happiness, it's a spiritual problem at the core. So what about victory? Ephesians 6 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is an intense verse when you think about it because it clues us into what I think we all kind of know intuitively is that there is stuff going on in a spiritual realm that I can't see. And I don't know what it is, but something is going on there. We all encounter that, and I think we see that even in unbelievers, those probably people who are in sort of that skeptic category, and they go, oh, I'm sick, or I'm having surgery, or I'm having challenges, and they put it on their Facebook page, and they say, thoughts and prayers are appreciated. Right? We could, we could sort of break that down, but what are they saying? There's a spiritual realm going on, and I even understand it in my mind. I understand it intuitively that it's there. And so when, the, when I say that the Bible gives us victory, I'm talking not about in the context of sports. I'm talking about it in the context of spiritual things, in the context of the spiritual realm. And I see that in three primary ways. First, I think the Bible gives us victory over Satan himself. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil... He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This verse tells us that, yes, there is a spiritual realm and our primary head enemy is the devil himself. And unfortunately, I think in our culture, the devil is sort of romanticized and comedized. And he's, you know, oh, he's got his little horns, his red suit, and he's funny, and we laugh at him. But look at the verse. It doesn't sound funny to me at all. He's trying to get me, and he's trying to get you, and your friends, and your kids, and your neighbors. He's after them. The devil is our primary enemy. So how do we combat him? Well, Jesus showed us. I'll put this picture up here, and I'll just read it for you from my notes. 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The devil came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, Satan, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And that's from chapter 4 of Matthew. And so here's Jesus. And Jesus is in this battle with our primary enemy, the one. Satan shows up to take him down. That unseen realm for Jesus becomes seen. And so how does Jesus fight Satan? He fights him with God's words. Why? Why? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is God. We've talked about that many times. Jesus is God himself, God in the flesh, part of the Trinity. And he stands there and he's facing Satan and Satan's trying to tempt him. Don't you think he could come up with some really clever, smart, intelligent things to say? I mean, after all, he's God and he knows everything. But what does he use? He uses the Old Testament. God's words that were already written down. He's God. Couldn't he come up with new words? He doesn't come up with new words. He uses the words that were written down. Isn't that amazing? What a model for us to follow in the midst of the highest stakes battle probably in the history of the universe. Jesus is thinking of us because he wants to give us a model for how to fight Satan. Second way we get victory, it's kind of like the first, is victory over demons. So here's a story about demons from Luke, Luke chapter 4. It says, In a synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. See, we see elsewhere in the New Testament, we go, Well, who are these demons? What are they? We see in Luke chapter 10 and in Revelation chapter 12, it just says the demons were, somehow they were angelic beings and they had this rebellion with Satan against God and they were cast out of heaven and now they work for the devil. They're like, yep, I'm signing on with you. I'm going to work for you, Satan. 
Sounds like a terrible deal, but that's what they decided to do. And what is that work? What is the work that they do? Well, it's not used car sales. It's not politics. It's not engineering. Even though all those things, you might say, those are evil. (laughs) They're in the business of what? They're in the business of attacking you and everyone around you. That's their business. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's true? And are you conscious of that fact? And does it affect the way you live your daily life? I confess for myself, I go, uh, I don't know if I always think about things that way. I go, I think it's reality. I think it's true. And so how do we combat the demons? Well, same way we do that with the, with the devil. It's with the Bible. What a word the Bible is. When we know and rely on the Bible, it gives us victory over demons. The third victory the Bible gives us is victory over temptation. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. And then Paul goes on and he lists all of this armor. But what is the one weapon? All of it is defensive, but there's one weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, in addition to dealing with the devil and with his demons, we have to deal with our flesh. And we have to deal with the world around us and our flesh. And the world around us, they attack us through what? Temptation. Temptation comes at us. So how do we defeat temptation? Well, there it is, right back in the story of Jesus. Jesus defeated temptation by both knowing and applying the Bible. Again, I think this is a model for us. Ephesians tells us that knowing the Bible is like wielding a weapon. It's like wielding a weapon of self-defense against temptation. And if you think about weapons for self-defense, I think about police officers. Why do police officers carry guns? That's not because they're going to attack the enemy. It's for defense. And you know, I looked up the statistics. I think sometimes we can think, oh, police officers, they're always shooting their guns off and and whatever. But they're not. Only about 25%, only about one of four police officers will ever fire their weapon in the line of duty during their career. And some are maybe in certain fields a little more likely than others. So most police officers that you meet will never fire their weapon on duty. And so you go, well, if they won't ever do that, why are they carrying a gun? Why are they carrying a weapon? It's to be prepared because you never know what's going to happen when you walk out that door. And if we take that and we apply it back to temptation, we go, uh, I do know what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is I'm going to be tempted. And we go, and we go, ah, I'm just going to set the Bible aside and I'm not going to engage it. I'm not going to read with it. It's the one weapon I have against temptation, which, guess what? I'm not one in four. It's four out of four. I'm going to be tempted. It's coming after me. I'm going to set it aside. Why do we do that? The Bible is our weapon against temptation that has 100% certainty that's coming after us. Shouldn't we be prepared? Shouldn't we be prepared? So I think in some ways that brings us back to where we started this morning. Will we recognize the need for the Bible in our lives? Will we recognize it or not? 
Will we see it as the source of truth? Will we see it as the, the starting point for happiness? Will we see it as the way to get victory in the spiritual realm? Will we embrace it? Will we see it as a priceless and useful treasure? More useful than the Constitution? Or a painting? Or some treasure you might find in the ground somewhere? Will we see it that way? I hope we will. We're going to pick this up again next week and we'll talk about more benefits of the Bible. I'll go ahead and pray and close our time. Yeah, Lord, thank you so much. God, thank you that, uh, God, the Bible is not useless. It's useful. And I don't even know if useful begins to describe how amazing your word is. God, we want to found our lives on the truth. At least I do. Maybe not everybody does. I think most of us in this room say, yeah, the truth is important. God, we remember that Jesus said himself, I am the truth. And we can find the truth when we abide in your word. And the only way we're going to abide in your word is if we read it and we study it and we put it into practice. Help us to do that. And God, we think about happiness. God, we want to be happy. We want to have joy. And yet, Lord, it seems like your word tells us that happiness is rooted in a spiritual condition. And so the way, the path to happiness is through your word. Through reading and applying your word. And God, we think about victory. Lord, maybe we don't think about it. We're kind of a rational people. We're rational maybe locally. We're, we're even sort of rational as a society. And we go, well, I can't really see the spiritual realm, so I'm not really going to pay much attention to it. But your Bible, the Bible tells us very clearly it's there. And we all know intuitively that it's there. And God, I don't want to be the person who walks out into the line of fire without, without my weapon. Lord, help us to be a people who are grounded in the truth and recognizing that somehow, some way, we've got to do battle. We've got to do battle with the enemy and with his demons and with temptation. Help us to cling to your word and to study it and to grow in it. Thank you for giving it to us. And thank you for Jesus Christ, your son. That's in his name we pray. Amen.